All right, back on the Young Turks, man, exciting day. Uh, we're gonna have our Iowa caucus um, show start in under an hour now, um, my heart's racing. All right, now, uh, Crystal Ball joins me, she's the co-host of The Hills Rising. She's also the author of a new book, The Populist Guide to 2020, A New Right and A New Left Are Rising. She wrote that with her co-host, Sagar and Jetty. Uh, and it is doing fantastic, rising up in all the rankings. Crystal, uh, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you, Jank. Thank you so much for having me. It's an exciting day. I'm kind of freaking out, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, you, you know, <laughs> you you have a really interesting dynamic there on, on on the rising because and in the book because you have populist left and populist right, which doesn't fit into anything else in Washington. Everything else in Washington is the establishment. And hates the populist left and the populist right, but yet you know, I feel like from the outside looking in, seems like you're well received. Like people are intrigued by by the rising and by your book. I don't mean real people. Real people are definitely intrigued and definitely like it. But by Washington, am I seeing that wrong, or what's what's the reaction in Washington to you guys? I mean, I think they're starting to be because it's becoming undeniable that this populist energy, this 70% of America that is enraged by the political establishment on both sides, the 40% that says they literally want to burn it all down when they think about our political institutions, they can't deny that that dynamic is going on. So I think they are intrigued because the reality is, look, we know the future of the Democratic Party. The future is a populist left, a more Sanders type party. We're gonna find out tonight if that future is here now or if we're gonna have to wait a little bit longer. But there's also a realignment happening on the right. So Sagar and I every day are sort of exploring where the overlap is, where the obvious tensions are, what that future might look like in a way that no one has really done yet. And Jink, you know, I mean, one thing you can count on from the mainstream media is that they literally get every single thing wrong because they're applying these old conventional wisdom heuristics that have been out of date for years and years now. So one of the things that we try to do in the book is to lay down the beginnings of a new frame that will actually be predictive, where you can actually understand what's happening and have some idea of where things are heading, which I know you intuitively grasp and talk about on your show all the time. So that was the goal of the book. We talk about the media bias, the candidates they're gonna like, the candidates they're gonna hate, the type of coalitions that matter in politics, the type of candidates that working class um, voters tend to be drawn to, and what an ultimate theory of change might look like that could realign the nation and center it around working class voters rather than the interests of the rich, which is what both parties are basically centered around today. Yeah, Crystal, it sounds like you might be in a lot of trouble uh, because uh, there's nothing Washington hates more than someone who's right. <laughs> so I mean, to your point, you, you just said it and we covered it earlier in the show. Chris Matthews said, "Oh, you can't vote for Bernie Sanders because of what happened with McGovern in 1972 and that hence he's not electable while ignoring what happened in the very last election in 2016 where the candidate he declared was eminently electable lost. So he's like, ignore 2016, let's go back to 1972 and, and then- right. Yeah, and then in terms of, of being able to lay things out ahead of time, well, look, that's why I make predictions on the show, because I want you to see how I'm thinking about it, why I'm coming to the conclusions I'm coming to, and so we're not doing Monday morning quarterback. We're giving you an outline for how you can view politics. But the thing is, on mainstream media, if you do that and you're right, they'll drive you from the platform. I mean, is there anybody on cable news now that was against the Iraq war? 
Is there anyone on cable news now that was correct about Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton in the primary that Hillary Clinton might lose to Donald Trump? I literally can't think of one person who, who was right on any of those issues that are on cable news. No, if, you, if you're right about those things, you're likely to lose your job. I mean, it's safe to be wrong in a way where the whole pack in Washington is wrong. Then there's absolutely no consequence. In fact, you'll probably be elevated in your job. But if you're right about things that are that are dangerous, that are risky, well, that's bad news for your career. I mean, just look at this primary. The media basically only noticed that Bernie Sanders was, was even running like two weeks ago. How many times do we hear such confident predictions? He'd be out by summer. Oh, no one likes him. Oh, he's got a hard ceiling on his support, always divisive, he's angry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now here we are, and look, we don't know how it's gonna go tonight, but it looks very, very good for Bernie Sanders, not only in Iowa, but in New Hampshire. And their failure to grapple with that is not only a grave disservice to their viewers and to the country, but it also means that the mainstream folks who would very much like to stand in Bernie Sanders' way didn't have an accurate picture of what was unfolding behind before their very eyes. Yeah, see, that's a great point, Crystal, because it's not just that they don't like Bernie Sanders. It's that they said, he, it, right now they're saying he has no chance in the general election. But they just said for a year straight that he had no chance in these primaries. And yet here he is at number one. So will they ever acknowledge that they're wrong? And so, it, but it gets to a point where it's a little depressing that, oh, that, <laughs> that people who are wrong are rewarded with multi million dollar contracts. And, and then do propaganda to the masses, which is lie after lie after lie. They say, even though don't believe your lying eyes, we just told you that Bernie had no chance in the primaries and now you see he's doing really well in the primaries. And then we're gonna tell you that he has no chance in the general election, even though you just saw right. us lie for a year straight. Right, well, and I mean, it's really, I think the fact that our book, which hasn't, it comes out on Friday, pre-orders are up right now. The fact that it's basically beating every other political book in the country, number one in elections, without having gone through any of these gatekeepers, just shows you how hollow and fragile all of those institutions are. So they think that they're still really important. They think that they're still really relevant. And meanwhile, the public has just completely moved on from them. So I think that's the encouraging thing. I mean, in a way, the fact that the book has been so well received by regular people out there in the country, by a grassroots base, proves the thesis of the book, that this is the new reality of politics, that this is where the energy is today, and that these old gatekeepers who think they're still holding on to, to something have really already become irrelevant. And the book's the popular guide to 2020, and, and I talked to Crystal before, so I know, like, it's totally organic, and and that, that's why your success is also shocking them. Um, whereas the conservative guys, they literally have billionaires buy all their books, so it rises up the bestseller list. It's the saddest, most pathetic trick in the world. Whereas progressives have <laughs> actual human beings uh, who care about them. But that leads me to look. The book's not just about populist left; it's also about populist right. So, is there a a place we can get to? where we have actual genuine agreement between the right wing and the left wing and not an agreement to lower taxes for the rich and start wars, which is a disingenuous agreement that the establishment Republicans and Democrats get to. Well, I love the way you put this and you understand this better than really anyone. There is a lot of bipartisan agreement in Washington today. It's around the interests of the wealthy. That's why if you look, and this isn't just me saying this, there's political scientists who've done the research who say if you're a wealthy person, you're very much likely to have your needs met by Washington. If you are anyone else, 
good luck, right? There's a lot of bipartisan consensus around cutting taxes for the rich, around rolling out bad new trade plans. I mean, look at what they did, the Democrats did the day after they impeached Donald Trump. There's a lot of bipartisan consensus around endless wars. We've certainly seen that over the past number of years. So what Sagar and I try to model is what the best possible incarnation of a new populist left and right could be, where rather than competing for the affections of the wealthy in this in this country, it's about competing for the affections of the working class. Now, look, you know, you and I both agree the the populist right in many ways is dangerous, racist, xenophobic, all of those things. But I've been surprised working with Sagar every day how much overlap we have in the diagnosis of the sort of core rot in the country and the hollowness of these values of consumerism and the Walmartization of all. All our towns have just sort of sucked the life out of so many of our small towns, small cities, and also out of the working class in large urban cities as well. So the fact that we at least agree on that diagnosis is an encouraging starting point. I think there are some potential areas of agreement and some potential definite areas of radical disagreement. But what we're exploring is the best hopes of what that new realignment might look like in the future. Yeah, as loathsome as Tucker Carlson is on things like immigration, he is genuinely anti-war, and it might be for the wrong reasons, but I'll take it. And he's I mean, Cenk, Fox News has more Bernie Sanders supporters than MSNBC or CNN because they're more fair to him as an anti-establishment guy than the quote-unquote liberal media. If that tells you anything. So, are, is the right wing as disgusted by their politicians as we are? So, do they look at Mitch McConnell and do they see like this, like this bastion of corruption, or are they still blind to it? No, I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you that that certainly for Sagar and for elements of the new right, they are just as disgusted with the establishment Republicans as we are with the establishment Democrats, no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't been crushed yet. Um, okay, so uh, where can people get the book, Crystal? All right, you can go to Barnes and Noble or you can go to Amazon. If you pre-order the book now and send an email to crystalandsager at gmail.com, we will personally record a video. Now, it might take a little while because we've gotten a lot of these requests, but you can pre-order the book now. It goes on sale officially on Friday, and we're really grateful um, to all of you out there who have supported us at Rising and who have been ordering the book. It means a lot to us, and I think, again, it's just a demonstration of the energy behind a populist movement that we're seeing sweep the country tonight being perfect example. All right, Populous Guys of 2020, Crystal Ball, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. All right, okay, when we come back, Amanda Turkle, what does the media think right now in Iowa? Okay, I'm super curious about that, I wanna talk about that. And then later, what are the downsides of polling? And what did I learn by phone banking for Bernie Sanders over the weekend? All that's coming up and then the results, so stay right here. All right, breaking news, uh, a real clear politics has gotten a hold of what the Des Moines Register poll would have said. It showed Biden cratering into fourth place, uh, losing six points from the last uh, average of polls all the way down to 13%. We'll see if that holds tonight, but that would mean that he doesn't get any delegates from Iowa. Wow, okay, so stay right here, we're gonna cover it all for you guys. In fact, let me go to my next guest right now. Joining me now is Amanda Turkle, she's the Washington Bureau Chief of HuffPost. Amanda, welcome back to the Young Turks. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem, it's a momentous night uh, where we might begin the progressive era. We might, we'll see how it turns out. 
And Amanda, I, I view HuffPost as kind of a bridge between progressives and the mainstream media. Uh, so I, I think that it's it's a fascinating place to be, and it gives you a perspective on both sides. So uh, do the media in Washington know how deeply they are loathed by progressives, and and how much they have <laughs> uh, attacked progressives for decade after decade? Uh, or are they totally oblivious? Like, oh, we've been perfectly fair to progressives. I can't believe some people are being rude to us on social media. I think probably a little bit of both, depending on who you ask. I mean, obviously, progressives have gotten a pretty unfair shake from the media, and the right has gotten a lot of preferential treatment. I mean, we saw this obviously with, you know, when I started in media, which was in the Bush administration, when they were just willing to take the Bush administration's word uh, when it came to the Iraq war. But you know, I think that the media is starting to realize that they have to take progressives and take the left seriously. You saw this with AOC's win, obviously, when her race was ignored by many people in the mainstream media, and it was covered more by progressive outlets and digital outlets. And so now, obviously, you have this momentum by Bernie Sanders, and the media is waking up and being like, well, he actually actually might win in Iowa, and he actually could win the nomination. Yeah, so, well, what are the consequences of that? Because that's really interesting. Uh, one, I'm not positive they really have woken up because they say, "Oh yeah, AOC, we screw that." But they always say that. Oh, Iraq War, we screw that up. We'll learn. But then they never learn, and then they go and do the same exact thing. So there's tons of progressive candidates out there right now getting no media attention at all because they're like, obviously progressives can't win. So really, did they learn? And then Bernie, they all of them, all of them thought he had no chance of winning at all, and now they appear to be in a panic now that he. Uh, is on the verge of possibly winning according to the polls in Iowa. So, I mean, look, before we get to the consequences, I'm just gonna double down on that question. Did they really learn? I mean, you're in Washington. When you talk to, um, my guess is you talk to a lot of mainstream media reporters. Do they have any sense of how strong progressives are in the country? Or in their mind, is this still like a fringe group uh, that it, you know that could largely be ignored? Again, I think it depends on the reporter you talk to. Obviously, you have a lot of younger reporters who I think realize what's going on. You have a um, at times a more diverse press corps who obviously see different stories that should be covered that traditionally the news media didn't cover, the mainstream media. Uh, but then, of course, there are still the establishment uh, reporters and media who maybe aren't seeing the bigger picture and seeing the movements that are going on. So I think it's a mix. I don't want to say everyone in, in Washington or in the media is the same. Yeah, so that's super fair and a great point about the age difference, right? Because I've seen the same thing. Um, younger reporters tend to be far more progressive because everyone who's young is progressive, like literally 80% according to the polling. And the more diverse the, the reporter base is, the more open it is to progressives. It's the older, not only reporters, actually it's the editors that in my opinion are the number one problem. They're like, no, no, no way, no way. They're stuck in 1972. Uh, so. Anyway, let's talk about the consequences though, if progressives get power. Because there are two different ways that this can go. My guess is that the first reaction is going to be what Chris Matthews is doing on air for the last 24 hours. Screaming at the top of his lung, socialist! And they're gonna throw the kitchen sink at Bernie Sanders is my guess. But also people in Washington love power. And whoever has power does usually get a little bit of kowtowing too. So how do you think it's gonna play out here in the case of Sanders and the progressive movement? Well, what's interesting is that a lot of people, uh, I feel like in the Democratic establishment were worried about Elizabeth Warren winning and you know she's too progressive, she's too far for, to the left. 
and they thought she was going to be the problem and it didn't look like Bernie Sanders could win. So they did what they could to sort of take her down to push her aside. But now, you know, while they were focusing on Warren, it looks like Bernie's rising in the polls and he's now the problem that they have to focus on. And for them, you know, he's even more extreme. He's been, you know, he's held these same positions. He, you know, wants to fight for Medicare for all. And so a lot of people in the establishment are now worried about, you know, does someone else need to run? Do we need to throw our support beside someone? Is Joe Biden not strong enough? Um, and so, you know, yes, there will be people who now try to make nice with the Bernie Sanders. There will be money going into other candidates, obviously, uh, to try to defeat him as he gains momentum. But he has a very powerful movement. And you see this just in Iowa, people who are getting engaged in the process uh, who wouldn't be otherwise if it weren't for him and who maybe who have never caucused before. Well, I love the smell of establishment panic in the morning. Uh, and I hope that's exactly what we're gonna get tomorrow morning. Uh, but it's okay, Amanda, they got it covered. Uh, they had Deval Patrick enter the race. Right, How's that right. Deval Patrick has not really <laughs> caught on uh, as much as I think some people thought he would. But you do, you know, another late entrant, you do have Michael Bloomberg, who is, uh, who looks like he will start to uh, be in the debates because of the DNC's rule change. He has been using, you know, millions and millions of dollars of his own massive fortune to be on ads. And so far, he's getting a lot of positive coverage because he hasn't really been challenged a lot. All you're seeing are his ads running, you know, his positive ads. And that could change, though, if he gets in the debates and starts uh, facing some more attacks. So, Amanda, I'm a ruffian, a Philistine. A barbarian at the gate. So I'll say uh, what you're not not supposed to say. Could it be that the media organizations that are getting hundreds of millions of dollars from Mike Bloomberg might be a little friendlier to Mike Bloomberg? Uh, these media organizations that are multi-billion-dollar corporations. Um, I, I'm sure that if you talk to the reporters, they will be shocked and chagrined at that suggestion uh, that their corporation might want to make profits. But it does seem okay. I could at least ask it this way. That they seem to have not run one negative article about Bloomberg as he pours in hundreds of millions of dollars to their media organizations to buy those ads. Well, I can't say what uh, other media organizations are doing on their coverage of Bloomberg, but you know, Bloomberg he does have a lot of money, and it's not just you know he hasn't just given it through ads to media organizations, but he's got given a lot of money to. Um, local elected officials, mayors, quite a few mayors have uh, endorsed him. He's given it to the Democratic Party. He's given it to um, Democratic organizations. You know, a lot of people know Bloomberg as they know Tom Steyer through uh, the philanthropy and through the contrib political contributions he's given them over the years. And I think it's a fair question to ask of whether that is contributing to either endorsements or maybe groups not criticizing him, uh, even though they may not agree with him 100% ideologically. So another really, really good point because everybody, you have to be mindful of why people make endorsements, why they back people, have they gotten money from them in the past? And by the way, that could be a, a, a benign thing. It could be like, look, Tom Steyer's helped a lot of grassroots organizations register voters, fight against the dangers of climate change, etc. So they think, well, I know him and I trust him. Or it could be, and and it's probably both depending on the circumstances. People are going, that guy. You know, butters my bread. <laughs> That's the guy who gives me money. So who am I going to back? This is not a hard question. So, and but a lot of times, um, unlike Amanda, the reporters don't give you that background, and then you don't know. It seems like, oh my God, he's got a lot of grassroots support out of nowhere in the Democratic Party. It's not real grassroots. It's the leadership. 
that sometimes gets funded by guys like Bloomberg. Anyway, that leads me to my question about John Kerry. So you saw the story about how the NBC News reporter overheard John Kerry saying Biden's gonna tank. When he does, the bankers don't want Bernie Sanders. In essence, he said he was talking about a venture capitalist that might give him a couple million dollars to run if Biden loses to Bernie. So do they still, I guess they still have these fantasies of some sort of establishment knight in shining armor riding to the rescue. Like does John Kerry not realize that when he says he's more electable, that we already actually had that election, it was 2004 and he lost? I mean, it seems crazy and he he walked it back once NBC News reported saying, you know, I was sort of joking, the reporter overheard, you know, miss misinterpreted this one side of the conversation. Um, but you know, obviously if John Kerry entered the race, he wouldn't be some knight in shining armor. That's not what people are actually looking for. It doesn't seem like this election. And we tried this, you know, Deval Patrick jumped in thinking that he could get some sort of big donor money that he, uh, you know, was well liked in the Democratic Party and could come in and be a more establishment candidate. And again, we were talking about he hasn't caught on at all. Yeah, and then, uh- Onto Bloomberg, it looks like the establishment's firewall is Bloomberg, that they've put all their chips in like saying, okay, if Biden and or when Biden now apparently they think loses, Buttigieg doesn't have enough, Klobuchar doesn't have enough, at least Bloomberg has all the money in the world and, and we like him and he would protect the rich and he would protect the corrupt consultants and lobbyists, etc. Um, again, I'm stunned by how clueless they are. Yes, he's rising in the polls because he's overwhelming people with ads. But at some point, people are gonna find out he did stop and frisk. People are gonna find out he's a former Republican. People are gonna find out he's incredibly conservative and wants to protect Wall Street, which are deeply unpopular positions in the Democratic Party. Does no one in Washington know any of that? Right, Bloomberg has been really playing up the things he's done on, on climate change, on gun control, the more sort of liberal parts of his record. But like you said, there's a lot more that he's done that's very Republican uh, because he was Republican. And I think that many voters in the Democratic Party will be pretty upset by that. You know, Bloomberg's other selling point is that I know Trump, I'm richer than Trump, I can go up against him. Um, I'm in this for the long haul. Um, and he has been hiring quite a few staffers because he he pays pretty well. Um, and you know, no knock on people who feel like they need a job and and you know, need a well-paying job. Um, and Bloomberg said he's going to be in this until November. And so that does appeal to some people. But I think, you know, he's going to, like you said, he's going to get a lot more scrutiny if he's in the debates, if it, the field narrows down and he's still in it and he's in it against, you know, one or two progressive candidates. I think things will be coming out that, you know, some people in the party may not like. Yeah, uh, I guarantee you that. Now it could be coming out here because what we do is we cover facts and policy on the Young Turks. Also on HuffPost, Amanda Turkle, Washington Bureau Chief of HuffPost. Great conversation as always. Thanks for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, okay, when we come back, we've got a post game just for the members, but it's a really important one. One is, I'm gonna tell you what the issue with polling is. And this is something that's almost never talked about and why progressives are undercounting polls. If that's true, then Bernie Sanders is gonna have a landslide today. I don't know, I don't wanna get too carried away, but we're gonna talk about it in the post game. And also I phone bank for Bernie Sanders because I'm an activist myself. And I'll tell you a couple of lessons I learned there that's amazing. You gotta be a member to see that, tyt.com slash join. Okay, and then right afterwards at nine o'clock Eastern, our Iowa caucus coverage begins for everyone, so stay right here.